Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I think a lot of people understand that the competition between state actors, whether it comes to between different countries or the culture war inside of the United States, that technology is a huge aspect of what's going on. And of course, artificial intelligence is a huge buzzword, a huge talking point of people who are looking at what's going to shape the future here. Now, the White House went ahead and issued an executive order recently. The Biden administration told us that they need to go ahead and tame artificial intelligence, that they need to train it to obey the DEI and CRT requirements of the progressive religion. And I wanted to go ahead and bring somebody who thinks a lot about artificial intelligence and other technological matters in to talk about this. He's an author. He's a key member of the Claremont Institute. And he is, of course, the host of Zero Hour on the Blaze, James Pulos. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and dive into this executive order, talk a little bit about the implications and AI in general. But before we do that, let's hear from today's sponsor. These days, it's impossible to thrive with just one job. Between increasing living costs, paying off debts, and planning for the future, things like buying a home, building savings, and even going on vacation can seem like fantasies. If your goal is financial freedom, you could start taking on more hours at your current job, work towards a promotion, or try putting your money into something risky like stocks, cryptocurrencies, or even a side hustle. But at the end of the day, do you really want to sacrifice time and energy that could otherwise be spent with your loved ones or on your hobbies just to make a living? Luckily, you don't have to hustle to reliably make more money. All you have to do is job stacking. Job stacking is the best way for regular people, regular employees, to unleash their earning potential and increase job and financial security. How? By working multiple jobs, but without burning out or more importantly, getting caught by corporate overlords. Job stacking allows you to reliably receive paychecks from multiple employers each month without having to work more than eight hours a day. You don't have to be in tech or any particular field or industry to do it as long as you can work remotely. If you've thought about working multiple jobs, but you're not sure how to start or are afraid of getting caught, get the fundamental job stacking course today and learn all of the secrets on how to sustainably work multiple full-time jobs from the foremost expert on the matter, Rolf Halza, author of Job Stacking. Rolf has worked multiple full-time jobs since 2018, including hybrid jobs, and has condensed all of his experiences and wisdom into a single four-module online course so you can start proficiently job stacking without having to make mistakes, figuring things out on your own, or reinventing the wheel in the process. Go to www.jobstacking.com and enter the promo code ORIN to get a special discount. All right, James, so we're going to go ahead and talk about this executive order. But before we do, for people who are unfamiliar with your background, you've made talking about technology and the way that we are interfacing with it a really critical part of your thought, especially when it comes to addressing spirituality and development. Could you give people a little bit of your background? Like, why did you make this kind of the center of how you're thinking about where we're heading in the future? Sure. Well, my background's in academic political theory, um, <clears throat> which is now uh, an almost completely irrelevant uh, discipline, like so much of academia. Um, this was even before uh, the sort of uh, DEI, CRT, ESG uh, barrage uh, set in. Um, it's uh, basically, this, it's kind of like political philosophy, uh, but it's a little bit uh, less... Um, philosophical, a little more theoretical, more social theory, sometimes even theology gets in there. Um, and so uh, all, all good news uh, as far as it went, it was a good ed education. Uh, but around um, 2016, 2018, uh, it started to become clear to me that if as a political theorist, I couldn't say anything useful about what technology was doing to so rapidly reshape and remake our inner and outer lives, whether in politics or really any other sort of area of human endeavor or experience, uh, then sure enough, that discipline probably decided to go on the scrap heap along with uh, plenty of others. Um, fast forward to today, of course, and you see the trend lines on uh, advanced degrees in the humanities. Uh, they are nosediving. Um, some of that is just kind of like, you know, poetic justice or, or just desserts. Um, in other ways, uh, the humanities value going to zero is, is not a good thing. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that later on. Uh, but really, for me, it was kind of a, a, 
a, a challenge that I saw uh, just being a, a gauntlet thrown down in front of everyone, really, including political theorists. Uh, so I kind of had to just beginner's mind it and uh, start from the bottom, learn the literature, figure uh, out um, how it interfaced with what I'd already learned um, about uh, politics and regimes and uh, the, the theory um, of how people order themselves over time and why they do so. Uh, and so when I was, you know, kind of working my way through this, uh, there, sometimes there's a lot of jargon. Sometimes we're throwing around concepts uh, that people don't immediately understand. But I kind of had to learn on the job uh, and write my way through it. You know, some people tweet their way through it if they're experiencing some kind of PR crisis. I had to kind of write my way through it um, and learn uh, in real time. Um, and so uh, by the time uh, 2020 rolled around, uh, people started to kind of realize that uh, things that I was talking about somewhat cryptically a few years ago were now somewhat obvious. Uh, so I've tried to stay one step ahead of, of unfolding events, uh, but they're moving fast. Um, and so really, I think the challenge has been intensified. Uh, people really do need to uh, to to uh, face up to what's happening to us and why it's happening to us uh, and understand some of the basic dynamics so that we don't lose our uh, identity, our humanity, our, our form of government, our, uh, our God-given rights, um, and, and plenty of other things to, uh, to technologization, uh, just to the routinization, automation of things that uh, until very recently have been uh, solely the province of, uh, of us human beings, or in some cases of, of angels and demons. Yeah, I think it's really critical because a lot of conservatives or reactionary types will look at technology and say, well, we're just not going to face this. We're, we're, you know, this is just something that needs to be put in a box or it needs to be destroyed or, you know, it, it will somehow disappear. They don't really want to look at how this is shaping people and what the next step would be alongside kind of kind of their political project. And so I do think it's really critical that you have people facing this problem and thinking about it. From, from a non-progressive worldview, because it, it's going to be impacting people one way or another. And if you simply leave it to your enemies, they'll be the ones that shape everything about it. And that's been a critical failure by the right in many different areas and technologies, you know, not least among them. So the first thing I guess let's talk about real quick is artificial intelligence. We know that this executive order is coming out and it's it's talking about how we need to get rid of algorithmic discrimination, right? We, we have to make sure that we secure equity and civil rights uh, through artificial intelligence. But I think when people look at artificial intelligence, it's really just a mixture of different concepts. It's a, it's a sci-fi fantasy. I hear some people who are very knowledgeable on the subject say, you don't need to worry about this. AI is never going to matter. It's, it's, it's a dumb technology that, that is uh, overblown. People are just you know, inserting their favorite uh, fan fiction into the ideas. And then there are other people who are like, no, you have to take this seriously. It's going to enslave us all in 10 years. Wh where are we with artificial intelligence right now? And how critical is it for nation states to kind of shape where this is going? Well, there's a, a now ancient history, John Lennon, Yoko Ono song, uh, war is over if you want it. And uh, I think we're at a moment where, you know, yes, humanity is over if we want it. Uh, we, we absolutely do have free will and we can use that free will to voluntarily choose to eradicate our humanity. Um, so AI matters now. It's, it's already happening. Um, it's every step of the way that we want to go down that path, we can go. And, uh, and I expect that there will be serious conflict uh, over those kinds of choices as things uh, accelerate and as the technology improves. That said, um, I am hesitant to refer to these things as artificial intelligence at all. It's a catchy term, you know, it's, it's sort of Kubrick, Spielberg uh, film um, of, of that name, artificial intelligence, AI, uh, back also in, in ancient history uh, in the primordial era. Um, these things are automated simulators. Uh, and that is why they're so powerful. Um, we like simulating things. We like simulations. Uh, you can go back to Jean Baudrillard or other uh, uh, social theorists um, who saw a lot of this coming. You know, 1987, uh, Baudrillard, uh, The Ecstasy of Communication, great slim little volume if you want a taste of, uh, of what the folks who saw this coming saw um, so, so relatively early in the game. Um, there were others, you know, we can, we can run through the list, uh, maybe, maybe in a minute. Um, but whether it's, uh, what film like Videodrome or, you know, Clive Barker writing about, uh, the, the Cenobites from the Hellraiser universe, like there was an awareness building in the building in the eighties, continuing into the nineties, obviously the, the matrix and other films, dark city, uh, <clears throat> sort of bringing this thing into, uh, into the mainstream as it, as it grew and developed. 
And uh, it's not that technological development is inherently bad, uh, but what is inherently bad is, is uh, giving into the temptation to retreat from reality um, and to try to substitute in a simulation for uh, the given uh, world in which we live and our given selves um, and, uh, and our given relationships. Um, trying to simulate everything uh, is a powerful temptation, not just for ordinary people, but for especially for smart people. And this is, I think, one of the key points that we need to sort of recognize is at the heart of what's going on here. Smart people like to think that if they just have enough power, if they build the right kind of tools, if those tools heighten their intelligence, that intelligence is really capable of solving any problem. If it's not working, you just need more of it. Uh, and what you're hearing out of some of the smartest people right now is, well, if the technology isn't working, that just means that we need more of it. Uh, I think Bill Clinton uh, back in the day saying there's nothing wrong with America that can't be solved by what's right with America. And this kind of attitude toward technology is um, just kind of the latest version of a longstanding view about intelligence, which is the same. The smarter you get, the better off you'll be. Um, smart people, however, obviously very blind to the fact that no, intelligent people can be very easily deceived. Um, when intelligent people make mistakes, they tend to be very large mistakes. Um, and there's a price to be paid, not just if you're the smart person making the mistakes or being deceived, uh, but all those who are affected by the, the artifice that you've constructed on top of the world we live in. So um, automated simulators, uh, very impressive things. They can simulate, you know, perhaps even the human soul. Perhaps they can even simulate something like the Holy Spirit. Uh, these are powerful machines. They are uh, disincarnate. They're floating around through space and time, able to do things that human beings can't do. They pass through our walls, pass through our minds, pass through our hearts. Uh, you can fit a seemingly infinite number of them on the head of a pin. Uh, and they're all talking to each other. And with 5G technology, that means they can all talk to each other more or less instantaneously. Um, heavy stuff. Uh, and if we do not take seriously the spiritual and theological and religious implications of these machines, of these tools, uh, then we will be inclined to say, wow, human beings really suck now. And wow, I guess our, our only hope is to listen to the smartest people uh, tell us that we have to uh, obey the, the even more intelligent machines that they create. That can be a powerful self-fulfilling prophecy, and that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. It's not the only path. We don't need to get totally black-pilled, but we do need to be spiritually mature and understand what the stakes are here. Yeah, really dangerous to be assembling our own hyper agents or even worse, probably like rediscovering ones that were best left uh, locked away somewhere. But but we'll, we'll dive into that here a little bit later. I wanted to focus first on this executive order. So like you said, obviously, a lot of intelligent people who think they should be able to run every aspect of humanity really believe in that social engineering is the way forward. We can rebuild man and, and reshape it in our own image. Love this kind of stuff because it, it lets them believe that they can centrally plan every aspect of humanity. But it's really, what's really interesting about, I guess, this executive order is while in theory, AI would allow them to wield this kind of power, allow them to have the, the kind of the computational power they need to, to plan everything and alter everything and, and, and such, they're already starting out by basically lobotomizing it. They're saying, okay, well, yes, we understand that this could possibly accurately model things, but we don't want it to actually accurately model things. That, that's really critical. We want to make sure that there are certain caveats that make sure that realities that might manifest themselves if we took you know too hard of a look at statistics and that kind of thing, we need to make sure that those are already cut out. And so the executive order specifically mentions having an AI bill of rights and making sure that, again, we don't have this algorithmic you know, uh, discrimination. It specifically singles out things like criminal justice, healthcare, housing, as things that might be uh, you know, reflected in, in these algorithms might be things that will select against certain groups, certain favored groups. Do you think that there's a, any, any kind of cognitive dissonance, any, any kind of confusion for these people between saying, well, we have this tool that could allow us to arrange society because we're so smart, but we also want to make sure it's specifically dumb in a, in a way that will keep it from identifying problems that we don't want people to see? Well, yeah, I think this is case in point of why what we're dealing with is ultimately spiritual, theological, religious, and not just a matter of, of, of intelligence or IQ or, or processing power. Uh, it, it, yes, from a secular standpoint, uh, it, it is kind of like ironic and concerning uh, to watch 
people say, well, yes, we need these machines and not just smarter than human beings, but actually dumber than human beings in, in some a few important respects that we will determine because we know best when a machine should be smarter than you, but also when it should be dumber than you. Uh, it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, I think uh, a, 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 an understandable but incomplete at best reaction that has bubbled up to the top in the face of things like, you know, wokeness or whatever you want to call it is, wow, this is just crazy. This craziness. It's so out of hand. These people are they've lost their minds. And well, I suppose in a certain sense, but in another sense, they recognize that when you have technology that is this powerful, that calls so fundamentally into question who we are as human beings, what our purpose is, what our destiny is, uh, the, the only kind of response that is going to assert a kind of authority over determining how this technology is developed and how it is used, that authority has to be spiritual authority. That authority has to be human beings saying, there's something about us which you might not be able to see, but which we know is real and which preserves our authority over these tools that we've created. And the Wokies uh, understand this on some kind of level. Um, and so from that standpoint, they're not trying to lobotomize the bots as much as they're trying to catechize the bots, hmm. as much as they want to ensure that these machines adhere to their religious or theological worldview um, in the same way that, uh, you know, ordinary Americans would probably prefer that uh, if we are automating parts of government, that these entities um, have fully internalized uh, the Bill of Rights that we already have. You look at the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of association, right to bear arms and use them. Um, these things implicitly protect what we already inherently have which is a right to um, access and use fundamental digital technologies in order to protect ourselves, uh, protect our uh, community, um, and uh, freely constitute our communities. Um, right now, we are going down a path where these people who are, are, are offering to us something like an AI Bill of Rights, they don't really want us to have free association. And they don't really want us to have access and use of fundamental basic digital technologies without which we cannot be free through those technologies or with them. They want to impose on us a top-down social credit, social justice system, and they want to use uh, basic technologies to enforce that system on us. You can't have wokeness without a woke su supercomputer at the end of the day. You need some sort of complex superintelligence in order to decide, okay, well, this person has suffered this number of microaggressions today and they need this degree of like micro justice payment. You know, it's so complex. It's beyond what human beings can do. That's the good news. The bad news is these uh, folks on the left are concluding that the only way that we can really have justice in the world is, well, we tried monarchy, that didn't work. We tried uh, aristocracy, that didn't work. We tried democracy, that didn't work either. So now we're just going to give it to the machines. We're going to program, let the algorithm do it. Um, algorithms are inherently discriminatory. That's what an algorithm is. It's giving a computer orders, giving software orders, telling some code what to do, to choose A instead of B, to select for X instead of selecting for Y to wait in favor of variable Q instead of variable uh, W, right? There's no way to create algorithmic systems that do not in some way discriminate. And so the question is, on what basis are you discriminating? And if the basis that you're discriminating on is, well, uh, we're in charge and we have this sort of uh, spiritual understanding of life and we are going to ensure that the way the system is built and the way the machines are coded is going to um, uh, hardwire, so to speak, that spiritual worldview into our system of government and way of life. Now, that is why I'm going around talking about a cyborg theocracy, because really, you know, sounds like a buzzword. Maybe it is not too hard to figure out. Cyborg just means you uniting the human and the machine. And theocracy just means uniting spiritual and temporal power. Um, that isn't America. It's not never going to be America. It never has been America. You got to go, you know, back to the Puritans. They tried it, putting Leviticus into the civil code. 
didn't work very well. They gave up and moved on. That caused some other problems we can talk about. But um, it's on the one hand not surprising to see uh, the our 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 leaders, our elites, reaching for that kind of, of theocratic control because it's a powerful temptation when you've got machines that's powerful. But in the U.S., we have to play by different rules. Uh, we have different understandings, fundamental understandings of our humanity baked into our uh, our, our founding regime. And we need to stick to that. Uh, otherwise, if we don't, it's not going to be America anymore, online or offline. Yeah, I think it is very telling of you know the usage that they will have for this algorithm, for the things that it specifically is not allowed to impact. They specifically say that you know it's not allowed to be biased in things like risk assessment or surveillance, predictive policing, forensic analysis, all these things that would keep you safe, right? All these things that would just be, I guess, what most people would hope would be kind of neutral uses of AI that would generally increase the safety of the average person. All of that stuff is off the table. And it, and otherwise, it, it seems like it's focused on kind of uh, bringing about all the stuff you're talking about where it's going to infuse the 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 new civic religion into every aspect of life. And so I guess the question is, like you said, there, there's there's going to be multiple versions of this. You're going to have many states working on this simultaneously. The United States is going to try to restrict it in a particular way. Perhaps other regimes are going to tr try to restrict it in another way. But the question is, can it actually be restricted? Like, will these will these attempts to catechize it be effective? Or is uh, kind of just the noticing power of AI going to be too much or will an uncaged AI just be that much more useful as to where people will constantly be trying to utilize that getting around these rules making them as useful as putting the puritanical code into you know early American settlements well to some degree uh, the the cat's already outside of the bag um, no matter how much the U.S. government focuses on AI safety, however defined. We are not the only game in town. There are other digital superpowers in this world. I can name them. U.S., U.K., China, Russia, I think India, probably in there, um, and Israel. Uh, and in every one of those cases, look, it's there's a sovereignty crisis. And the only way that you can reestablish your sovereignty as a, as a major power in the world uh, with um, with that kind of digital equipment is by going to the the root of of your civilization state. Every one of those countries that I named uh, represents or embodies a particular civilization, um, and it's not surprising to see them all reaching for those resources. Uh, Russia has rediscovered uh, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, you, if you go back and look at uh, the the um, consecration of their their newest newest cathedral the main cathedral of the armed forces in 2020 they put out a big shiny video and said you know this is inaugurating a new relationship between the military and the church uh they're going back to back to basics uh even in china you know i think that the the smartest or most insightful uh analysts in china uh, and analysts of china recognize that there a, a large number of, uh, of chinese are reaching to to taoism and to some of those other um uh, foundational uh, Chinese uh, religious doctrines in order to uh, reassert their their sovereignty over the technology within their civilization state. Um, obviously, you know Israel uh, not not usually thought of in those terms, but now you've got Benjamin Netanyahu out there uh, talking about Amalek, and you know that, that they're moving quickly in that direction too. It seems uh, India, you've got Hindu nationalism, um, and in the U.S., uh, we're having a, a cold civil war over which version of uh of religiosity is going to uh be our touchstone um that's that's going to be a big deal but the point is um there are going to be other paths taken by other countries and it's not going to be the u.s saying we run the show over the entire world and we're going to dictate ai policy around the entire world it's not the way it's going to go down so in that respect yeah we have to be prepared for um for ais to do things uh, and behave in ways that are radically different from however we end up doing so in the US. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, look, in order for America to be America, we need to take on the risk of uh, protecting um, American citizens' right to keep and bear compute, to have that access and, and use of those basic technologies. I'm talking high-powered GPUs, I'm talking uh, you know, certain kinds of AIs. I'm talking things like Bitcoin. Uh, I like Bitcoin not because you watch the number go up and we all achieve nirvana just without having to lift a finger. 
Uh, no, I like Bitcoin for the opposite reason, which is right now the technology is well enough developed that regular ordinary people can use it to build culture, to build institutions, algorithmic markets, buying, selling, exchanging goods and services that strengthen our form of government, strengthen our way of life, strengthen our humanity. That's why I put my book Human Forever on uh, the website. It's called canonic.xyz. It's on sale in uh, for Bitcoin. It's uh, uh, encrypted right there onto the blockchain. Um, fundamentally different way of doing things, very powerful way. I think that's why uh, regulators and, and others really want to get their hands on it and, uh, and nationalize it in the same way that I think ultimately they want to nationalize AI. So you got this AI safety conference going on right now in, in the UK. Why is it there? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm interested in you know the deeper question of what is human safety with regard to this technology? Who can you really trust to exercise uh, proper spiritual discernment with regard to the development of these technologies. It's not all about just saying, oh, well, if we purify the law, then we'll live happily ever after. That's not America. That's not something that law can do um, even before super powerful technology enters into the picture. But that's where we are. And falling prey to that temptation of saying like, well, look, you know, just like Europe is trying to do, we'll just get the regulations right. As long as we have the, the pure and virtuous regulations, uh, the, the law will rule and humans will be safe. Not exactly. Uh, we need to look inside. We need to look in our hearts. We need to look in our souls. We need to understand how to reestablish spiritual trust in the digital age. And if we do that, then yes, we can have nice things. So you, you've mentioned this many times. I guess we can get into it a little bit here. Theology, you know, in, injecting the spiritual into this conversation seems to be a critical part of the future for you. I think one of the biggest problems, that one of the biggest disadvantages that the right has is that the left, while it's a it's a mystery cult of power in many ways, it does have some kind of stand in for religion. It does have a unifying world vision, no matter how corrupt that might be, that they're moving towards. However, the right has this vague notion of just returning back to something. They don't even know what uh, Christianity might be somewhat involved in it. But even people who talk about Christian nationalism, there's all these warning bells that go off. People lose their minds. You know, oh, this is this is an attack on the Constitution. And so I guess the, the question is, is, is this a major disadvantage for the right? Because it's, it, I hear all these people talking about, well, we need to symbol the logos or we have to return to constitutionalism. All these really vague non-particular ideas of binding spirituality that feel like they just have no hope of fighting against what we're doing now. What would be something that would unify and, and bring a, a coherent uh, kind of front to the opposition to the current regime? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, you know, look, it's, it's what has unified America um, in, in the recent past uh, war. Um, the, the, the use of technology to create ever more powerful weapons of war and have that be our source of authority. Uh, you know, it's, it's worked out to our advantage, relatively speaking, um, until quite recently. And I think, you know, hitting that wall being like, well, wait a minute, like we did create the most technology and we did sort of take over the world and it was going to consummate, um, just turn the world into America and, you know, we'll all sort of live happily ever after. That is what people at the elite level who were basically raised by television, formed by that kind of televisual medium that was the most powerful thing on earth before digital came along. They really did think like, hey, you know, we're building these things. These things are going to be our friends. They're going to work to our advantage. How could they not? We're the most powerful. We have the biggest dreams. We dreamed the biggest dreams. We followed our passions. We did all those things that, you know, people were taught in grade school before uh, DEI came along. Um, and we built the internet and we, uh, we won the, the Cold War. Um, so it only makes sense that uh, we're, these tools are going to allow us to perfect our domination of the world and sort of, you know, terraform a planet Earth until it's all basically America. Uh, we're going to end tyranny, George W. Bush, second inaugural. Um, it all made sense on paper uh, and it made sense in a lot of smart people's minds. And it just didn't ha happen. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary. Uh, the rules-based international order is basically already gone. You know, you see the U.S. trying to find this kind of middle way on Israel, which, you know, might be might be the correct thing to do. It might be the, under the circumstances, if you're the, the statesman and you're trying to figure out how to navigate, sometimes you do need to muddle through. But muddling through is a lot different uh, 
uh, of a brand than the brand that says we have established rules for the entire world and they're objective rules and you need to follow them or else the missiles are going to rain down on you. Um, multipolarity is here. Uh, we've got these radical differences, different civilization states, different approaches to technology, different kinds of spiritual authority. Um, and, uh, and, and so the U.S. is really in, in uncharted waters. Uh, that's especially hard for the right uh, because um, the right is divided and it has been divided. Uh, it's been divided on, on religion. It's been divided on uh, what's the best regime. It's been divided on, um, on uh, military policy and military adventurism. It's been divided on uh, commercial issues, cultural issues, lots of divides. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I think people on the right have some justification to uh, pat themselves on the back a little bit for saying, you know, we, we, we can sort of discuss things openly and we can debate like basic political considerations. And yes, that's citizenship. Yes, that's a good thing. You don't want to just sort of enforce uh, mental conformity uh, on, onto everyone uh, who's aligned with you. Um, that takes us back to, you know, why the, the rule of law seems like a good thing. Yeah, you want sort of like uh, uh, predictability and social interactions to some degree and it helps economically if it's not that you know you wake up in the morning and all the rules have changed like obviously yes like in that sense the rule of law is a pretty good thing but when you start worshiping uh the law when you start seeing the law as the thing that will save us uh that becomes really difficult so uh on the right there's kind of this you know uh well what about the rule of man perhaps we need stronger men to come along and kind of take charge of things and just kind of tell people what the new rules are uh, you know, you look back at the historical record and, and even in circumstances where a regime has collapsed and needs to be rebuilt or when you're coming out of a war and you're just kind of like, well, we need, can someone, anyone sort of take control for at least a minute while we clean up the rubble? Even in those circumstances, the, uh, the track record of, of strong men is, is not super great. And it's basically pretty inconsistent with the way Americans think about the, the point of life and why we should bother going through the struggles of life. So for me, what that means is we have to look to spiritual matters. You know, we got to look to, I'm a Christian, you got to look to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit is not moving among the people, if we're not, if our relationships aren't mediated by God, then what are they mediated by? Well, probably by the worship of something else, whether it's money or weapons or fame or uh, fantasy or any anything else. If the spirit is mediating our relationships, if it's flowing through us, then uh, we can be spiritually fruitful. We can take our spiritual treasure that we've been given by God and we can put it into circulation the way we've been asked and perhaps ordered to do. Um, and then we can see the fruits of those things. And you can you can know the tree of our of our society by those fruits. Uh, if we don't do that, um, what will happen? I think what will happen is we will put all of our energy into trying to simulate that experience, trying to simulate spirit, trying to build a, a an invisible, omnipresent technological entity in the hopes that it can substitute for the lack of the life-giving spirit moving through our selves and through our relationships. Uh, and I think we're starting to see some of that happen already. Um, technologists are becoming increasingly overtly uh, theological or religious, more openly tech worshiping. That's, you know, you might see something nefarious in that. You might see something awesome in that. Your mileage may vary, but it's to be expected um, because of these dynamics that, that we're discussing. Um, if the right in America doesn't kind of have that in some ways literal come to Jesus in Jesus moment, but in other ways, just kind of like recognizing that this is the environment that we're in. There's a new set of rules. Um, they're not rules that come out of a law book. They're not rules that come out of a strong man. They're rules that come out of uh, the kind of environment that we've created for ourselves, uh, like it or not. Um, if the right doesn't recognize that and adjust accordingly, then yes, I think there is going to be a lot uh, more pain and more tears. Are you optimistic about their ability to do that? Because I feel like the core of the right really has been this legalism. It really has been this idea that, well, we just need a constitutional convention. Once we once we can, you know, write a, one more amendment, if we can just go ahead and, you know, fi find a trick around the Washington swamp, then everything will be set right again. 
it feels very difficult and I, it might be due to the scale. I, I feel like at some point the problem is the, the scale of social organization. The, the right is looking for, you know, one national election to just kind of swoop in or one quick a, adjustment to a document to go ahead and set everything back to the 1950s. I think it's a lot harder for people to, you know, kind of come to grips with the idea that they're going to need to center their lives spiritually in communities, families, you know, region, regionalities. I think that's a lot, that's a lot longer road to hoe. And I think that very few people on the right are, are in touch with that reality. We're still running around expecting a new speaker of the house to, you know, to make a significant difference instead of understanding that this is going to be something that's a, a much longer and deeper project. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in theory, in principle, in the abstract, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we do, however, have an amendment process. Like we have every regime, it's not totally dead. Uh, we have a constitution, it's not totally dead. We have an amendment process. Uh, perhaps that could, could help us remain American in, in a digital age. And so, you know, I support a digital rights amendment. I support, you know, that kind of broad overarching language of the first and second amendments uh, explicitly laying out that, you know, look, America is not going to be America. If ordinary people are alienated from our most powerful technologies, we need to be able to put our hands on these things to restore our competence, uh, to restore our confidence. And with that competence and confidence should come spiritual humility. Um, without that ingredient, then we're just going to fall prey to the same delusions of grandeur that, that people throughout history, including Americans, have had in the past. And all, it always ends in tears. So, you know, I, I do think that that uh, addressing um, in an explicit way the, the constitutionality and the way that, you know, natural rights that are, that are addressed in the Constitution, these things do not stop at text edge. They need to go into that area of life, which is so dominant, and they need to be present there as well. Otherwise, we're, we can say goodbye to the regime that we have. And, and, you know, God knows what will come after that, but it won't be, it won't be good. It'll be less human. It'll be less free. It'll be less American. Uh, am I optimistic? Um, there's a lot of talk of tech optimism going around these days. Uh, uh, Mark Andreessen, um, uh, the, the, the venture capitalist, uh, dropped a, a tech optimist, mm -hmm. techno optimist manifesto, uh, that that's been making the rounds. Uh, and I've, you know, I've gone around with, with Mark a little bit on this, but I'll, I, thanks to those conversations, I can be a little bit sharper, uh, in, in this conversation. Um, I'm more concerned really about the optimism part than about the technology part. Um, I am less worried about having too much technology than I am worried about having too much optimism. Uh, cause I don't really know what optimism is, you know, uh, it, it, when you look under the hood and if in the box marked optimism, it just turns out to be tech worship. Like, well, no, not only is that not optimism, but it's not good. Um, it's hard to explain what optimism is. And I think it always pulls us into this kind of secular key that is especially unhelpful or even uh, harmful or especially dangerous in a digital age. Uh, the worst thing that we can do is um, to succumb to this temptation to to hail technology as our savior, um, to give in to that kind of giddy experience of like, it's happening, you know, but elevated to more than a Ron Paul level to like a worship of the antichrist level. Um, this is, you know, people can sometimes start backing away when you start talking about the antichrist, but it's, you know, conceptually, it's not that bizarre to think that there will be uh, something very, uh, enticing, um, tempting, uh, a feeling of real sort of shared catharsis. Um, that feeling that says like, we finally did it, you guys, we finally like cured what ails us. We left behind all the bad things about our humanity. And, you know, here's our hero. Here's the, the superhero who is, uh, is, is the man meets the moment of super intelligence. And that figure is someone we can all rally around. We can finally have that unity that we crave. You know, this is it. Um, all our prayers have been answered, right? But it's not going to be Jesus. It's going to be this other figure. And technology can really pave the way for that. And we have to guard against that because it's not intelligent to do that. It's not smart. It's not clever. It's not wise. It's, it's, uh, it's lying to ourselves um, and encouraging all of us around the world to uh, be complicit, to be conspirators in the same grand lie. Um, that's, you know, that's been a bad idea since the beginning. Um, and it's a really bad idea now. 
So uh, optimism, I don't really know what that means. You know, I, I think that being hopeful, being prayerful, uh, being discerning, um, not giving into panic, not giving into despair, um, those are all good. And now more than ever, um, if we have all those things, uh, the development of our technology is going to be something that is under spiritual control in a healthy sense. It can grow. It can uh, um it can exist in a kind of harmony um, that I think reflects and represents the proper harmony between uh, between church and state. You know, theocracy is bad because it tries to combine church and state into a single entity. And we know historically that that's not very good. And we know what that the, the cost of that can be very high, both to both to the state and to the church. Um, at the same time, you know, having a strict separation, uh, that usually doesn't work out very well either, historically speaking. So the, the harmonious dance between these two uh, institutions, it can be messy, it can be imperfect, it can require a lot of patience, it can require a lot of discernment. Uh, but welcome to Earth, you know, this is not, there's no way to speed run this, we can't do it on easy mode. Um, it is demanding, and what is demanded of us right now is, I think, something that uh, in some senses is, is simpler, more humble, more straightforward than optimism, but in other senses, yes, is more demanding, uh, requires more discernment, and requires us to get out of our heads and to come down into our hearts. Yeah, and uh, while I, I, I hope for the kind of the discernment that you're talking about, I, I worry that it's going to be in short supply, you know, uh, uh, Philosopher Nick Land said that the thing about being an accelerationist is it doesn't really matter what you do because it's going to happen either way. And I, I feel like that that just seems true. There's there's a certain inevitability. You know, we look at the way that uh, that technology has accelerated since kind of its escape from from kind of regionalities and the entire time that humanity has kind of thought about the consequences. I mean, I don't know, you know, they probably predates the. Uh, you know, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but that's kind of the first thing that pops in my mind where you, you just have this inevitability, you know, there's something dangerous around the corner, you know, you shouldn't go there, you know, that pursuing this is going to have a, a kind of an inevitable, inevitable bad effect, but humanity just seems compelled to chase it no matter what. Yeah, no, we probably shouldn't go ahead and engineer viruses to maximize their lethality or their ability to, to spread, but we're going to do it anyway, because it's an option and somewhere someone is going to kind of cross that bridge no matter what it feels like the ability of individual humans to discern might exist but the nature of technology and its ability to kind of spread throughout the globe means that individual discernment doesn't really kind of put any kind of limiter on what technology uh, what technology will develop and where it will go well there is something to that um you know i think my my response is there's one thing that that moves faster or stays one step ahead of technology and that's religion. And I think we see that happening around the world right now. Um, no matter how fast technology moves, it's always going to arrive in a place in space and time where uh, worship is already in full swing, uh, different kinds of worship. And yeah, you can have uh, worship of technology itself, but even that, you know, even that seems to me to be kind of just a, you know, like a, an antecedent or a, an attempt to kind of present uh, something as, as other than what it is. Um, it's funny to me that uh, the kinds of people who say, you know, it is written, technology is going to eat everything. There's no escape. Like whatever is going to happen is going to happen um, are also the kind of people who tend to look at like the book of Revelation and go like, this is ridiculous. You can't be sure. Like, what do you mean? This is a fated to happen. And it's like, okay. Um, it's, it's pretty clear what human nature is. It's pretty clear what, what the temptations are. Uh, and it's pretty clear that, you know, the way of the world is to double and triple and quadruple down on itself and on the idea that, you know, gosh darn it, we are going to solve our own problems. We don't need to rely on uh, a creator. We don't need to obey. We need to uh, leverage our way out of everything that sucks about who we are. Um, and, uh, and we know that... Um, Every time that's been tried in the past, it hasn't worked. Um, and we know that the ultimate attempt by that logic will fail in an, in an ultimate way. But there can be a lot of casualties. Um, there can be a lot of misery and suffering. And uh, you just look at the, the trend lines on everything from birth rates to T counts to sperm counts. Um, it's going down. 
uh, it's there's a deep seated longing um, in the human breast for uh, a surrender, a total surrender of responsibility. Um, and in bad times, that leads people to think that they're perhaps best off just exiting life altogether. Um, even just with with the world the way it is right now, you know, there's so much energy uh, around. I mean, look, like, yes, let's make America great again. Sure, it would be better if we were great than if we sucked and we're just declining empire, falling apart at the seams. Sure, but that that longing to go back to be great again, whether it's the you know Art Deco or the Norman Rockwell, you know, you're gra grasping for these signifiers um and there's a lot of energy going into like no guys like we'll just innovate more and then it'll be awesome we'll have jetpacks and we'll like uh the nfl will play games on the moon and we'll just go in the sphere and you two will be cool again and it'll be awesome like will it though will it really i think more and more people are becoming just disenchanted with all of these kinds of like attempts to just zap them with more voltage to get them to get up and do stuff again. A lot of people just think that it's all kind of a joke and they are hungering for spiritual reality, for spiritual nourishment that is nowhere to be found in these, you know, optimistic camps about like innovation and dynamism and all that. They are thirsting for spiritual life and it's looking increasingly like more people are going to turn away from the world in order to find it. Um, I think we're going to see more monasteries. I think we're going to see more monastics and, along with, unfortunately, more suicides, more, more, you know, people shutting themselves in their, their basement with their VR headsets, more efforts to withdraw from the world. Now, in order for us to respond to that deep-seated longing in a way that is constructive and healthy and, and protects our humanity and restores it, we have to be able to provide spiritual institutions that give people who want to withdraw from the world a way of uh, asserting um, a healthy kind of authority over our technology, one that the law itself can't do. Uh, so when you hear me running around talking about Bitcoin monasteries, like, what's that? Well, that's kind of what that is. It is an alternative to uh, disappearing into addiction, disappearing into suicide, disappearing into the sphere, disappearing into the VR headset, disappearing into porn. Well, no, you can, if you want to renounce the world, great, come into the monastery, um, gather your spiritual energies with others and apply that spiritual energy to the shaping of how basic technology is used. I think that's going to become a more important part of life as life goes on. But this is America. People still like to mix it up. Um, there is still a lot of, of restless energy out there. This is a very big country. You look at Europe, you got very not a lot of land to go around, even if population goes down. America is going to be a big place for a long time, I think. And there's a lot of room to roam and try things out um, and experiment uh, in, a, in a practical sense, uh, in the sense of, of trying to restore uh, the basics, not some potted vision of what the cool future could have been. But really just the basics of like, okay, you know, the tables have been turned, like the the, the hourglass has been flipped around. Um, America isn't what we thought it was going to be. So how do we respond to that reality? Uh, building from the ground up in a way where the spirit can move through us and uh, the things that we do are, are fruitful and, and uh, increase our flourishing. Oswald Spangler uh, predicted that the West would walk away from science and technology, that it would grow sclerotic it would find that it had put itself into these containers and these rules that were simply just a straitjacket too defining the the metaphysical could no longer manifest itself and so they'd need to basically leave those those restraints behind by kind of releasing those stringent rules i also think about somebody like alexander dugan who has kind of said that once you get to the end of the strictly logical present the idea that you know we're we're we're, uh, we're postmodern we're post-liberal that that kind of opens an absurdity up there lets the spiritual return and i wonder is it necessary for people to walk away from these things is it necessary for these things to collapse for the return of the spiritual i i, I would like a world that you're describing where people bring that which was america forwarded to these things or that that which was, you know, I guess there will always be some aspect of that, but I have a hard time seeing it 
kind of reform itself into something that allows that spiritual manifestation while still holding on so tightly to what many people have, have kind of assembled as the American identity. Yeah. Uh, a couple things. Um, it's hard for me to assess Spangler as, as thoroughly as some people in my orbit might, might want me to just because there's this question of like, well, wait a minute, what is the West anyway? You know, what are we talking about here? Is this, is this a name that applies to an actual thing? I mean, just to take a, a semi-random example, if you're Eastern Orthodox, like what does the West mean to you? Uh, you know, Orthodoxy, you do Russia, you got uh, Syria, Greece, Romania, uh, Georgia, like it's, it's part of um, a, it's part of Christendom uh, in a way that, that goes beyond the boundaries of, of East and West really, uh, or, or, uh, rises to, um, a higher level of organization than is captured in the, the sort of East West dynamic. Uh, so I think we need to be a little bit more precise about, you know, what, what the West means, if we're going to assess, you know, what the West needs to do or, or how the West is going to end up. Um, but I think, you know, you're, you're right to suggest or to hint that as important as that spirituality is, um, it's not enough. You can't just like drive around the country, just like spreading spirituality around and expect things to go well. Like America's always been a very spiritualistic place, uh, great awakenings, cults, uh, utopian communities, heresies, just from every pore, you know, in some ways. Um, and this is, you know, this is like sociological analysis here. I'm not, I'm not here to, to point out people's denominations or whatever and go, you know, heretic, heretic, heretic. Um, that's uh, for another venue. Um, my point <laughs> is that there's a lot of talk um, in our digital age about networks and about the importance of networks. You got technologists out there saying like, Hey, you know, you can, you can build new forms of governments on the network or use networks to do it. Um, and yeah, there's something to that, but, but more importantly, um, spirituality needs to have a certain kind of institutional ballast or else we know from experience that it spirals off into a bunch of like weird and unhelpful and oftentimes very deeply damaging directions. Uh, or, you know, if it, if it doesn't go that wrong, then at least you just end up with, uh, I mean, when I think of what's the West, I think of religious war. Like the West is a place where the wars are religious. Uh, I, I include Islam in this, you know, you got Jihad, you got the wars of, of religion in Europe and Protestant Reformation. And, uh, and you can go to America and you say like, well, America has been quite free of religious war. And it's like, well, you know, the civil war was basically like a religious war. Um, uh, the, the Indian wars, basically religious conflict. Um, and all that craziness with sort of the Mormons getting chased out into the, the Utah desert. Um, lots of religious conflict. Uh, and when conflict erupts in the West and in America, it oftentimes takes on a religious character. Uh, not just because the Bible thumpers are at it again, but because this is something that's, that's deeply rooted in our civilization. Uh, so if we want to somehow find a way out of that kind of trap, um, I think people are going to have to recognize that a, a strong and ancient church is going to be a help. Uh, just sociologically speaking, if you walk away from a strong and ancient church, you are going to have the kinds of problems that is going to that are going to make it too difficult for you to get on top of the technological problem. Uh, if your spirituality is dispersed, if you are um, organizationally weak, if you don't have that ballast of a strong ancient church, uh, then you're probably going to be too divided, too confused, um, too uh, focused on haggling over interpretive disputes to um, muster the spiritual authority um, that scales to a level where you can really uh, restore some some basic controls over technological development. Uh, so that's you know that's my view of things. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's for some Americans, that's something that they're, they're going to be reluctant to, 
uh, accept. But, you know, look, uh, sometimes it takes a long time for someone to have a religious conversion. Other times it happens very quickly. Um, just the, the, the whipsawing events of the past, you know, four, eight years, uh, there's a such dramatic change, not just in, uh, in governance, not just in the economy, not just in technology, but in people's spiritual experience. I mean, it's really been profound, especially coming out of lockdowns. Um, things can change very fast. And so what seems to be outlandish or, or, uh, far-fetched today, uh, might become something approaching conventional wisdom tomorrow. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think there's some merit to it. I would say that America is probably more spiritually Protestant than it is spiritually anything else. Uh, that's more core of the American identity than than many other things, and, and a discarding of that would probably be a discarding of American identity in general. But, uh, you know, that that's a longer discussion to be sure. Well, uh, yeah, let, let me just say one more word about that, though. Uh, lots of Protestantisms out there, lots of different kinds of Protestantism out there. Uh, when you look at high church Anglicanism versus uh, uh, Pentecostalism, I mean, you got Unitarian Universalists running around saying, oh, we're Protestants, too. And it's like, well, don't believe in the Trinity. You know, I mean, it's there. There's so much uh, variance here. Um, where's the center of gravity in American Protestantism? I think that's a very interesting question. I think that in, in some cases, um, I mean, it's really almost a jump ball. Like you look at the retention rates of even some very successful churches uh, that are bucketed together uh, as, as Protestant. I, I think, you know, Latter-day Saints is about 50% retention. Uh, evangelicals have issues. A lot of these churches are fragmenting. Some of them are dying off. Some of them have been wokeified. It's very fluid. Um, and people are, you know, uh, looking for a lifeline, something that they can grab onto that isn't going to slip through their fingers. Um, so I think, you know, I think the, the religious future of America in that sense is very wide open, uh, perhaps more wide open than it's been in a long time. And, uh, yeah, I think you're right. You know, there is a kind of, uh, uh, tendency toward uh, uh, an anarchist sensibility with regard to spiritual matters. Uh, but, you know, how's that working for you? Um, I think that's a question a lot of Americans are going to be thinking through. Fair enough. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and pivot to the questions of people real quick. we got a few over here. But before we do that, James, is there anything people need to be checking out? Where can people find your work? Uh, well, gosh, uh, blazemedia.com slash tech. Um, the show is zero hour on blaze TV. Uh, I, I will, uh, plug a few other things, uh, the American mind at the Claremont Institute, americanmind.org. Uh, there's a podcast over there called the round table as well as weekly publishes and editors podcast. Uh, it's mostly focused on, uh, straight up and down political stuff, but there's cultural and tech stuff in there as well. Uh, the book is Human Forever, uh, canonic.xyz, um, all flavors of Bitcoin, all the major ones anyway. Um, and uh, what else? I feel like there's something else, but uh, but it's slipping my mind. Oh, x.com. Yes. How could I forget? At James Polis, first name, last name. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, trying to, to, to tread lightly, but DMs are open. And of course, guys, make sure you go ahead and check out the new Blaze site. Uh, articles from both I and James are over there, and uh, they've redone everything. They've gotten rid of all those really ugly ads so that you can go ahead and enjoy uh, all of the different articles that they put up there. Of course, they've gotten rid of the problem of demonetization with big tech because you don't have to worry about the ads anymore. But of course, that means they do need your support to make sure that work like ours keeps showing up on the site. So make sure you go ahead and check out the new Blaze uh, news site. I think you're really going to enjoy it. All right, let's see what we've got here. Uh, Maximilian Cunnings for $2. I'm studying worldviews. What advice do you have? Uh, well, man, that's a that's kind of a wide question. Of course, if you mean religions, there's many different options there. If you're talking about uh, you know political systems, uh, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, James, where would you suggest someone start if they're looking at different worldviews? Yeah, I mean, I would start with what is a worldview? You know, what what are you really studying? And is that really what you want to be studying? So I think, you know, taking some time to just dig into that question, uh, understand, you know, who, wh what that concept is, where it came from, uh, and whether it's leading you really in the direction that you're trying to go. I think that's a good place to start. All right, Skeptical Panda here for $5. Thank you for the great discussion, Oren and James. I can't always catch live streams because of work but I listen to the podcast after. And yeah, guys, of course, it's great to catch you during the live streams. It's great to have the camaraderie, have 
the audience here, everyone talking, having a discussion. But of course, you can catch all of these episodes on places like Blaze TV and you can catch the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the Aaron McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. And then we have uh, George Hayduke here for $5. The transhuman ideologues and the right-leaning tech optimists are traveling the same road and will find themselves in a common destiny. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a uh, kind of a famous argument. There's, there's the old joke that uh, most of Nick Land's argument are, are like trans cat boys or something. So uh, there's, there's certainly an overlap there to be sure. Either way, I guess it is an, a, an abandonment of humanity. And that's why I think that James's uh, work is interesting because of course he's focused on keeping the humanity uh, first and foremost when we're talking about tech, not walking away from tech, not uh, not avoiding the question, uh, not becoming Luddites, but also ensuring that humanity is the one being served by tech and not the other way around. All right. Well, guys, I think that's everything. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. But thank you, James, so much for coming on. It's been great, man. 100%. And yes, everything you've heard about the new Blaze is true. Uh, website's beautiful. The content is uh, nutritious and delicious. So. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming by. And as always, I will talk to you next time.